Welcome to The Permanent Things, a conversation about the liberal arts, great books, and intellectual history. I'm Ben Myers, a professor in the Western Civilization Sequence that is part of the core curriculum at Oklahoma Baptist University. The topic of this episode is the American Constitution. I posed six questions about the Constitution to Dr. Christopher McMillian, who is an assistant professor of political science at OBU. Dr. McMillian holds a Ph.D. from Notre Dame and is an expert on constitutional law and federalism. Christopher McMillian, welcome back to The Permanent Things. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, today I thought we'd do a kind of, if not rapid fire, at least repeated fire, sort of six questions on the Constitution. Uh, so we'll dive right in with question number one. That sounds great. What would you say is the state of constitutional literacy today? Poor, at best. More realistically, probably abysmal. This is, to some degree, a failing of our education system writ large. Mm. In the public school system, uh, civics education has often been cut for a variety of reasons, including that if it's not on the standardized test, then it doesn't have, there's no time in the schedule for it. Uh, And sadly, at the collegiate level, we've lost a focus in many disciplines and at many schools on teaching the founding principles, even in the context of trying to understand them, debate them, perhaps even eventually deride them. Hmm. We've lost the uh, ability, it seems, to go back and cover that material, and the focus is far too contemporary, which leaves us with a misunderstanding of what the Constitution really says. On top of that, though everybody seems to know their favorite portions of the Constitution, it seems like we almost purposefully decline to understand the Constitution as a whole and consider how its competing or uh, apparently competing aspects have to be resolved. We'd much rather cite our preferred section and uh, tell everyone else to move on. <laughs> that sounds, sounds like the Bible, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the, uh, the same basic problems of interpretation. Yeah. So, uh, question two, um, what difference has it made that the American Constitution is written as opposed to the unwritten constitutional traditions of uh, places like Great Britain? It makes, oh, I mean, ultimately it makes a huge difference. We have to remember that the decision to write down the Constitution was taken very, very purposefully, and by a group of men who overall truly admired the British system of government and its unwritten constitution, but thought, uh, and if you look at the list of grievances in the Declaration of Independence, you see the specific list of why they thought this. They thought that it did an insufficient job of protecting individual liberty and of keeping various government actors in their places. And so that's why we have, at the core, a written constitution. And though Britain continues to pride itself, and of course they've survived, they've thrived for a very long time on their unwritten constitution, you see that they've started to write down large Mm. portions of it. Mm. Rights are written down now. Some limitations on government are written down now. Uh, The European Union, even though they're leaving it, uh, the European Union's laws and central documents that essentially form its constitution have become a part of British law. And the principle of parliamentary sovereignty, 
the idea kind of central to the unwritten constitution of Great Britain, that Parliament is supreme in virtually every way, doesn't really apply anymore. It's still technically true, but recently, when uh, Boris Johnson tried to prorogue Parliament to uh, eliminate the discussion of Brexit, to try to push them up to an October Brexit date in 2019, uh, the Supreme Court of Great Britain which was only created, Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, pardon me, which was only created finally in 2010, overrode him. And so the value of the written constitution is in its boundaries and protections for individual liberty. And even in the UK's historically unwritten constitution, we now see so much writing down that it's almost like they have a substitute yeah. written constitution. Yeah, it's har- hard to imagine a modern state starting out with the intention of an unwritten constitution after after America sets that, that precedent. After the precedent is set, and after the risks to individual liberty for failure, failing to actively protect it uh, started to emerge even more distinctly, once... Uh, republicanism, that is to say what we usually call democracy, representative government, was widely accepted in the West. Yes, you're absolutely right. The idea of starting fresh with an unwritten constitution and just saying the legislature can basically do what it wants is unthinkable. Right. Uh, Question three. What would we be missing as a republic if there was no Bill of Rights? This is a fascinating point. Because, of course, the Bill of Rights consists of the first ten amendments Mm -hmm. to the Constitution. It wasn't there originally. And James Madison and others who argued for the ratification of the Constitution insisted, at least through roughly mid-1788, early 1788, anyway, they insisted for quite some time that we didn't need a Bill of Rights. Because a Bill of Rights is designed to protect people's liberties, individual liberty, from government overreach, from government repression. And the argument of Madison and uh, those arguing for the ratification of the Constitution was that the federal government would never have the power to reach individual liberties through its own regulations. There's lots of positive things to say to really admire about Madison and the framers. This is not one of them. I mean, they were just, they were wrong. And we saw that almost instantly. The Alien and Sedition Acts under John Adams are a wonderful example of this. The Bill of Rights didn't really help there, but eventually we'd get that working. Uh, Without the Bill of Rights, the federal government, or now that we have the process of incorporation through the 14th Amendment, the state governments could potentially say, we have the power to regulate this area, so forget about your freedom of speech, or your freedom of religion, or the idea that you need to be equally treated under any laws. A principle in the 14th Amendment, yes, but pointed to by the 5th Amendment especially, and uh, the rest of the protections of individual liberty in the Bill of Rights. Without it, there would be at least much more opportunity for government overreach into individual lives. And its creation early on was a statement by the American Republic that it wasn't going to take the risk to assume that the government would be good. That instead we would assume that the government, like all human institutions, could be bad and attempt to restrict its ability to reach individual liberty. So that's important as a legal governmental principle and also as a philosophical principle. Precisely. As a legal principle, it provides an additional constitutional written boundary. 
As a philosophical principle, it essentially marks our territory. That this republic is committed, perhaps to additional rights. The Ninth Amendment says that the Bill of Rights does not contain all of rights the people all of the rights the people have. But at the very least, as a philosophical principle, these are things that the government may never violate. Question number four is one of those unfair questions, like uh, you know, what's your favorite book or who's your favorite child, right? But uh, <laughs> what would you say is the the greatest strength of the American Constitution? Well, because of me, I'll always say federalism, the uh, division of power between the national government and the state governments. But more broadly, it's the separation of powers. That comes at the level we normally talk about when we use those words, uh, what we can also call the horizontal separation of powers. Three distinct branches of the federal government, each with its own authority, and designed, contrary to some of our uh, political discussions, where people panic because the branches are arguing. No, that's the point. As the Federalist Papers tell us, the idea, at least, was for ambition to be made to counteract ambition. No, we don't want them actually fighting, but arguments and turf wars are actually part of the design to get them to exercise their powers and to react when others infringe upon those powers. And so uh, the horizontal separation of powers remains extremely valuable for keeping each of the three branches in its place. On top of that, the vertical separation of powers, or federalism, and the Tenth Amendment, which says that all of the powers not granted to the federal government are reserved to the states or to the people, respectively. That gets complicated, but we won't get into that. Uh, Anyway, governmental authority not granted to the feds is reserved to the states. And that means, again, that there's a competition. No one government has total control, and they're going to fight about it which helps us to see when either level is trying to overreach. Sometimes that, that can boil down to one of the greatest strengths of our, of our government being um, how little it can get done. At yes, times. absolutely. Yeah. It is not designed to be the most efficient thing yeah. in the world. This is actually one of the reasons for the creation of the Office of the President, so that the executive could be efficient, while the lawmaking apparatus inside the government is meant to be inefficient. Not impossible to navigate, but slow. Question five is the flip side of that. So (laughs) what what is the greatest weakness of the Constitution? The greatest weakness of the Constitution, in my assessment, is also something that, to be fair to the framers and those who have amended it since then, is kind of unavoidable. Mm -hmm. And that's how vague portions of it are. The most obvious example in, uh, well, so many obvious examples, in Article 1, Section 8, uh... The Constitution tells us that Congress has power over commerce among the several states. And ever since then, we've been arguing about what that means. What is <laughs> commerce, and when is it among the several states? We have no idea. It's not clear. And so there have been significant changes over time and how much commercial authority Congress is allowed, uh, leading to a peak in the late 20th century, when some very important legislation, including the Civil Rights Act of 1964, was passed not as a matter of the 14th Amendment or some other portion of the Constitution, but specifically as authorized by the Commerce Clause. So the lack of clarity isn't helpful there, nor is it helpful in the 14th Amendment where it says that uh, the states must provide equal protection of the laws. It's not even remotely clear what that means. Again, I think this is largely unavoidable. Uh, Germany, in its basic law, 
after World War II, and South Africa tried to be much more specific, build in a semi-American model, but be much more specific, and that's caused other problems. Hyperspecificity is its own problem, but many of our disputes, uh, many of the ongoing disputes that we have are based on the vagueness of portions of the Constitution. Question six. What do you see as the greatest contemporary threat to the Constitution? Internally, inside the government, I think the greatest threat to the Constitution has been um, since the 1930s, but most prominently since the Great Society. Congress kind of intentionally giving up its lawmaking power, and in doing so, ceding an enormous amount of what should be legislative authority to the president which has encouraged the presidents, and we're not just talking about Trump, we really are talking about Trump and Obama and Bush and Clinton and the Bush before him and even Ronald Reagan, where the goal has not been to necessarily recognize the bounds of the office, but building on the efforts from before them. And again, FDR and LBJ are prominent in building this view of the presidency. Uh trying to exercise as much of the power of the national government through the presidency as possible. That's a violation of the separation of powers, and it's a heavy risk to the republic. Outside of the government, I think that one of the biggest threats today is found in kind of the abandonment of wholesale defense of, say, the Bill of Rights. We've seen this with the ACLU recently. They used to aggressively defend nasty, horrible human beings who said evil things because those horrible human beings were also entitled to free speech, even if it's hateful and should be reviled. But we don't really do that anymore, on the left or on the right. Mm. We protect our own, but we try to draw the line at using the same set of rights and the same logic to protect those we dislike. Mm. And that's dangerous. It's, a, it's an abandonment of the idea of comprehensive personal liberty, and it leads to bad places. That, in a lot of ways, circles back around to your answer to question one. Yep. Um, that that uh, failure to robustly defend the Constitution, I'm sure, has a lot to do with educational changes and uh, gaping holes in the education of many Americans. I think it does, yes. Uh, and then a bonus question. So if you could recommend a book on on the Constitution to our listeners, uh, what would you recommend? Right now, I've been fascinated uh, by Pauline Mayer's, that's M-A-I-E-R, Pauline Mayer's book on ratification. It's entitled Ratification. It describes the state-by-state process of debate, consideration, and analysis of the Constitution when each state was considering whether to approve it or not. And on top of that, it helps us understand how the Bill of Rights came to be and how early conceptions of the operation of the Constitution would actually play out based on demands from the delegates of the people in the states. It's a really interesting read, and it's enlightening because it goes beyond the convention and the formation of the Constitution and looks at a series of political events that shaped our understanding of that document. Excellent. Sounds fascinating. I'll link to that in the the show notes. Excellent. 
Dr. McMillian, thank you for speaking with us again. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Permanent Things. Remember, you won't find The Permanent Things on Twitter or Facebook. But where you do find 